All right, so welcome back to the podcast, the Somewhat Serious Podcast. Today we have a special guest. His name is Anthony Chiaravalletti, a business builder, content creator that focuses on media and money. He's a founder and managing partner of King Street Media, as well as the founder of King Street Wealth, and the studio that we're currently recording in, Creator Club Studios. So give it up for Anthony Chiaravalletti. Thank you, brother. I love saying that. Thank you. Another thing I forgot to mention is he's the host of his own podcast called the What They Didn't Teach You in School. Yeah, right. You have a lot of things going on. That's what my mom says. <laughs> so how was the timeline of what you started? So how Because usually you don't start things all at once. It kind of goes chronologically. So yeah. tell me a little bit about your story and your entrepreneurship journey. When I was, uh, when I was 18 years old, I started working at TD. Um, while I was doing my undergrad, I'd have a science degree. And, um, the only reason why I started at TD bank was because, uh, my parents told me that if I didn't get a job, I would have to, um, go work with my uncle in construction again and in the summer break, which I didn't like because it just wasn't for like construction is not for me. These hands are not made for doing construction. Mm -hmm. So, um, <laughs> uh, I started working at TD and I fell in love with the idea of like helping people with their money. Um, that's what I went into healthcare for was to like help people. And when I found out like how intimate of a relationship you could have with somebody when helping them with their money, their finances, their taxes, I fell in love with that. Okay. Um, because you have like a, a, a like an accountant or a banker or a financial advisor has a deep intimate relationship with their client, very much so like a doctor and their patient. Um, so I really liked that and I excelled, um, in it. Uh, and then when I left TD bank, I wanted to become like an entrepreneur. And the reason why I left TD after five years was because I was, I was noticing all of these social media companies, uh, pop up. Like mm -hmm. when I left, uh, university, Instagram and Snapchat just started, you know, uh, I'm 32 years old. So back in 2008. 12 when I left university, all these companies were popping off and I was like, I need to be a part of this social media entrepreneurship hustle that was just starting to become a meme mm -hmm. at that period of time. But when I quit, um, I tried to become an entrepreneur, whatever that means. And I realized I knew nothing about entrepreneurship, nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, and for that reason, I was like, okay, I have to like learn how to be an entrepreneur. So as I was doing co-ops and internships with different startups, I needed money. Yeah. And the only thing that I knew how to do at that period of time was to help people with their finances. So I started a, um, a financial practice on the side just mm -hmm. to pay my bills as I was on my path to entrepreneurship, okay? Whatever that ends up becoming. I still don't even know what I want to be <laughs> when I'm older and I'm 32. Yeah. Um, so just to backtrack yeah. a little bit. So with TD... So you started out as like a teller, and teller, financial advisor, small business advisor. Mm -hmm. I was helping with like uh, management of the branch, like closings and like doing the the vault in the back and stuff like that. So I was on a really good track there for being like a successful career at TD Bank, mm -hmm. um, especially because I was so young at the time. I was like 21, 22. So just like the trajectory is I would have had a really safe, successful career if I stayed at TD Bank. And actually, just to backtrack a little bit, if I can, I want to tell you a story during that period of time, which is that um, essentially you're like a salesperson there. You're trying to like hit your quotas yeah. and stuff like that. And one quarter I hit my quotas really well. 
So I was on like this like list of people that got invited to a TD Wealth event where Kevin O'Leary was speaking. Oh, okay. okay, that's huge. And it was like downtown at like this nice office building, big boardroom. There was like 20 people in it. But then as Kevin O'Leary was talking, a bunch of other people came. So it was like a packed boardroom. Okay. And I remember sitting there that morning and I was so excited to like see Kevin O'Leary because back then he was like just on the up with like Dragon's Den and Shark Tank and mm. stuff. So um, I'm sitting at this boardroom and I look around and it's like everyone is above the age of 60. And it's just me and my cousin. We're like 21 year old kids. So I felt like really out of place. Yeah. Right. But I ended up getting there. OK. Um, through whatever the contest was. So Kevin O'Leary comes in, he does his whole shtick because he was selling like a ETF fund or a bond fund back then. It was called the O'Leary Funds. It didn't end up working out, but so he was there, he was doing his spiel. He's such a good storyteller. Like he had everyone just at like the seat of their chair, like what's he going to say next or whatever. So he finishes his presentation and he's over in the corner of the room. I'll always remember this. And he's putting his laptop away. And I go to him because I was, I was thinking, like, I want to ask him a question. Like, he was a, a mentor or, like, an idol of mine back yeah. then. Um, so I go up to him, and he has that, like, rough personality from the TV show. Um, and he didn't have, like, a big Instagram following back then like he does now. So I went up to him, and I was nervous. I was like, how's this guy going to, like, interact with me or whatever? And I said, hey, Mr. O'Leary, like, do you mind if I ask you a question? And so nicely, he was like, yeah, of course, like. Go ahead. I was, just, but he's so like rough around the edges on TV, right? So he's actually a really nice person in real life, like from what I've seen. So it's just this this TV thing, yeah, is a the persona? TV persona, uh, persona. But I'm sure it's like it's somewhat like himself, like how he is in business. But he was super. He puts everything away and looked at me like I was the only person in the room there, like very attentive. Okay, I would not have expected that. I wouldn't. I didn't expect he didn't that tell either. You whatever you told him, take it behind the barn and exactly. shoot it. No, he didn't. <laughs> But then I go, um, you know, I just graduated university. I'm working here at TD Bank. What's one piece of advice you would give me? Okay. Mm -hmm. And he looks at me and he goes, <laughs> uh, he looks at me and he goes, well, the fact that you're in this room means that TD values you very well, considering what age you are, which means that you're going to have a great career here, but you'll never get rich unless you become an entrepreneur. And I'll always remember that because from that was on a Friday and Monday I quit. And and I've been an entrepreneur ever since. And I said, well, I really appreciate that. Thank you. And he's just like, no problem. He's like, you can stay here and you're going to live a good life, but you'll never get rich unless you become an entrepreneur. And I'll always remember it, too, because as I was walking away, I was like, thank you so much. Appreciate you. As I was walking away, he like turns around and he goes, one last thing. It was like a, a movie. He's like, <laughs> one last thing. He's like. The first three million is the toughest to get. After that, it's easy. <laughs> I remember turning around and going like three million. Like I barely have three grand in my bank account right now. Right. <laughs> 21. It's tough. Yeah. 21. It's tough. But he just goes at three million. The rest is easy. I just remember walking away. I DM'd him that story on Instagram. I didn't get a response back. But one day, like I want to be able to like meet him and shake him's hand and be like, because of you, I became an entrepreneur. Or, or at the very least, because of what he said, gave me the kick in the ass to like then leave my comfy job and become an entrepreneur. Like, did you know that you could never be rich through TD or were you like, oh, I could climb the corporate ladder and eventually I'll get to a point where like I'll, I'll be I'll make enough and sustain myself. There was a lot of other factors. Like I was dating a girl at the time and we broke up. And when you're when you're when you're um, 
in a stable relationship, a stable income makes a lot of sense, especially if you have like kids and stuff like that. Like if I had a wife, three oh, kids, you, you no, that, right? no, okay. no, no. But if I had a wife and three kids and a mortgage, it's less likely that I would have left TD Bank. But I was 23 years old at that time mm -hmm. um, and uh, just broke up with a girlfriend and no kids, no attachments. So fuck it. Now's the time to do it, right? When you're young. That's a crazy story. I really like that story. Because yeah. a lot of people would have took that and they would have took the leap of faith. But A lot of people don't. Or a lot of people along the way, they take the leap of faith. They fail the first time and then they go back. Yeah. I always it's say, uncomfortable. yeah, it's uncomfortable. I always say it. It's like nine out of 10 businesses fail. So I'm going to start 10. Yeah. I've, I've had that same mentality yeah. when, when I saw that statistic. Cause like you're going to try shit. And it's just not going to work out. And sometimes it's out of your control and other times it's in your control and you learn from it. If I, you're absolutely right. If I start 10 businesses and none of them friggin' worked, then maybe I'll go work at TD bank. <laughs> and maybe even then I won't. I probably won't, but maybe. I always said I'm going to do 10 and we'll see where I am at that point. Okay, so from that point onwards, so you quit your job. You said Mr. O'Leary came through, gave you the, the kick in the ass. The kick in the ass, yeah. lit that fire, yeah. and quit on Monday. So what happened when you jumped? Well, it wasn't rainbows and butterflies. <laughs> it was a lot of like depression and existential crisis. I could imagine. Um, of like my life has been wearing this tie and being this like financial person that my identity has now been backed by it. Um, especially when you're that young and you've spent five years doing it. That's 25% of my life was spent identifying myself as like a banker and a finance person, right? Um, but luckily I have really supportive parents because I don't know where I would have been without supportive parents that during the dark times, they were like, uh-uh, get out of bed, let's go, go do something, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, like I started uh, interning at different uh, startups, some in AI, some in machine learning, some in software, one in robotics, and in various roles like business development, chief marketing officer, chief CFO, different roles, learning from the people who have been there and done that on what how the ropes work in the entrepreneurship zeitgeist, but also um, what do I want to be and what don't I want to be as an entrepreneur? And I did that for about like four or five years. So like from 24 to 26-ish. Uh, sorry, 23 to like 26-ish. Th so three, four years. And during that period of time, my financial practice started really growing and that allowed me to work on other things on the side because of that practice of how it did, which is like in finance, you're really busy January to April. And then May to August, you're like, you do like five hours a week of work, <laughs> yeah. right? And then from September to October, you're busy again. And then like November, December, it's like no work. So during those off times, it allowed me the ability to like now again, do more internships, work on different ventures and projects, develop my skills yeah. as an entrepreneur. So can you elaborate more on the financial practice? Because so like, how did you start that? Is that what grew I, to be King Street Wealth? It did eventually over time. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I started at a uh, financial brokerage. So it's like a franchise. It's a, if you go to a financial brokerage, it's like you're when you first get started, it's good to go to a brokerage because they teach you everything. So they give you the softwares, the tech, the compliance, the paperwork, mm -hmm. the support, right? They take a cut for that, um, but it's a good place to start your career. So I was there for 
six years until I was 28 or 29. And that's when I went out on my own and started King Street Wealth. Okay. Yeah. During that period of time, I had many other ventures as well. Um, just trial and error. Like, where do you go to learn entrepreneurship in this world? Like, even universities and colleges, they teach you the theory of entrepreneurship, but entrepreneurship is an applied science. Right? That's the worst thing I think I've done in my university degree is try to take an entrepreneurship class um, because my, it was my professor. I feel like it's dependent on the person, whereas the person, if the person is there and he started businesses and he's ran them and he's grew them and he's been at every stage, then yeah, I can learn from you. Yeah. But if it's just someone that's like, I learned from a book and I read this theory and I read this and I read that, but they never applied it. It's like, how do you know? It's anything tr- about it. It's like. true. There is an element of theory in entrepreneurship. So P&L statements, uh, management uh, practices, like whatever, product market fit, tech stacks. Like there, there's an element of theory to it. But that's like saying that you're going to learn how to be a carpenter by going to a university degree for four years. It's not possible. It's an applied skill set, entrepreneurship. So during that 23 to 27-year-old period of time, is when I did my degree in entrepreneurship by essentially working for free or sub-minimum wage at various positions and jobs um, at startups. That's how I learned how to be an entrepreneur. While working a main gig on the side, um, just paying my bills and getting through, et cetera. No, that's like the only way. And to me, it was like, as all my friends were getting comfy jobs and making money, um, to me, it was like, well, I'm just... I, a lot of my friends that I went to university with were going into med school or dental school or physio school, and they were like paying $50,000 a year to be in school. So for me not to make a lot of money was in my head, I was just like, I'm doing like my MBA or like my medical school right now. And that's how I mentally was okay not making a shit ton of money during that period of time when other people were. Okay. Did you fall into that trap? Because I feel like that's something that a lot of people do where... When you're building something up and in entrepreneurship, this quote I really like by Naval is like, you bleed a little every day till you eventually get that big payout. Yeah, right. And that's really hard to go through because when you're growing up and you reach that age, all your friends are getting these high level jobs. They're making five, not 500, anywhere between 150, 200K. They're getting these salaries. Meanwhile, you're learning, you're bleeding a little every day yeah. to get to the point where you could start your own businesses and eventually have that big payout or equity in that. I love that. I love that uh, quote by Naval, like big Naval fan. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's true, but there's a certain level of like not many people in their 20s get six-figure jobs. It's the same thing with like the lottery. No one wins the lottery, but somebody does. And because somebody does, everyone believes they can win the lottery. It's the same thing with making a lot of money in your 20s. The, ma- the vast majority of people do not make six figures in their 20s. But because somebody does that you hear about, it makes you believe that if you're not making six figures, you're like less than, you know? But the majority of people that make six figures do it in their 30s, you know? So I don't, you shouldn't compare yourself from that reg- in that regard. And because I was like a financial advisor who literally saw so many people's notice of assessments and pay stubs, oh, okay. I knew that not a lot of people made six figures. So I never beat myself up for that. But it was more like, and even the people that do make six figures, they're paying something in return for that, which is they're sacrificing their 20s. Most of those people that I knew, at least, that made very good money, 
they made a sacrifice somewhere along the line that then made that worth it. Mm. You know, it's either you went to engineering school, so you had no life from 17 to 22, and then you made six figures, or you were like an investment banker who made six figures but didn't have any time to actually like enjoy life. Yeah. Right? Working nine to nine, yeah. six days. The people that make good six figures and have a good life are usually in their mid to late 30s or early or their 40s, you know? That's something that, for example, that happened to me where I was working as a software developer and I was trying to be a software developer. And I was only in it for the financial incentive. Like, I didn't really like it or nothing. Yeah. But I was only doing it because a lot of my friends were in that same field or were business development, like, representatives, and they were all making like anywhere between 100 to 170 because that's how it is with software right like when yeah, san yeah. francisco all these guys are making like 150 plus stock options yeah. plus bonuses so i felt like oh like i can't not have this job and then when i quit it was like and there's nothing abyss and dissery. well one there's nothing wrong with making good money mm-hmm. if you no, understand that everything in life there's a push and a pull right so yeah, you might not like the job, but if you want to make good money, go do it. There's nothing wrong with that, right? Um, the second thing that you said that's super important to note is when you compare the income levels of somebody in San Francisco or New York to Toronto, although Toronto has a high cost of living, the cost of living in New York and San Francisco is substantially higher. Everything from their press juices to their lattes mm-hmm. to their rent to going out for a dinner, everything's more expensive there. So it's relative. Yeah. You can get a lot further on $120,000 a year in Toronto than $120,000 a year in the Bay Area. I didn't even, I didn't care. I was just looking at the number. I'm like, I need to make Most this people much. don't care for that reason, but they don't factor that yeah. cost of living difference into like incomes in the United States versus here. That's where financial literacy comes in. That's like yeah. an aspect of it. Which is why during this period of time when I was, 25 is when I started what they didn't teach you in school, Mm. um, which was my, which is my podcast, which is that the majority of people that came to me, it's interesting where it's like, there's very few professions in the world in which everybody cares about yet. So few people don't know about it than finance, personal finance in particular. It's like, yeah, Content and media is important to a lot of people. Health is important to a lot of people, right? Mm -hmm. But finance is important to nobody in this world doesn't care about money at the end of the day because you need a certain amount of money to just live, Yeah. right? Yet so few people know about it. Why is it not taught in school? Religion, English, gym, mathematics, science are all taught in school, but not personal finance. Why? So that's why I started what they didn't teach you at school. Um, as a podcast passion project of mine to tell more people like our tagline is making Canadians more financially literate, literate one post at a time. Mm-hmm. And I started that and now it's developed in something bigger where it's not just financial topics, but there's many other topics in this world that are not taught in school that should be. And that's what my podcast is about. Check that podcast out. We'll link it somewhere. It's important because <laughs> that's like a big like thing of mine. It's a big like philosophy or motivating um, factor for me, which is to educate people more on the things that they should be taught into school. Intrapersonal skills, intrapersonal skills, um, understanding yourself. That's all of that. It's like how to interact and be a part of a team. These types of things. Um, even I wish uh, home ec was taught more in school because I certainly could use that right now. 
So I was till my thirties, I didn't know how to cook. <laughs> I still barely do. I actually anyway. that was a class that I took. I didn't take family it. Family studies, and right. I got I got grilled by my friends. They're like, "Why are you taking family studies?" I'm like. It's interesting. It's light. It's useful. I, and I, it's I took useful. it because there was a girl. Ah, there you go. <laughs> that was the real reason. But the girl's <laughs> gone, but the skills are still there. Love so. that. I love that. With financial aspect, like it's not only that people don't know. They know wrong things. They have these um, certain notions that they think are so true. Like one of them being that I talked to Jim about my last guest is that they think their house is an investment when they live in it. Hmm. That's something that my parents fell into where they wanted to just buy a house. And buying a house was this like freedom and investment and that was going to solve all your problems. Whereas having a house and living in it is the biggest liability. It's, it's not the biggest liability, a, but it is a liability. It's so true. I'll say I want, I want to touch upon the previous thing. Misinformation in the personal finance world is like crazy. It's the same thing in the science world too, like um, healthcare and whatnot. Misinformation mm-hmm. is such a big deal there. Um, and I think it's because... Both of those topics, health science and finance, are, are, are rooted in a scientific method but are used by so many people that there's a lot of like pop culture trends to each of them that makes the misinformation of like the scientific backing hard to decipher. So yeah, that's super true. Um, and then the second thing on the house is that um, a house is a liability for sure. Um, but all it is, it's a forced savings plan. So let's say your mortgage is $2,000 a month. Usually 1000 of that goes to principal and 1000 of it goes to interest. So your actual cost of living in the house is not 2000 it's 1000 mm-hmm. And the other 1000 is a forced savings plan. So essentially, it's like the bank being like, you have to put $1,000 a month away into a savings account, which is in the equity of your home, Right. So it's it it is a it is not necessarily a massive liability, but it is a liability that most people don't see. Um, but it is a great way to build wealth too, because it's psychologically it's forcing you to put a large portion of your income away into a savings. I feel like it creates safety, but in order to create, it, like if you had let's say five hundred thousand dollars of disposable income, yeah, you're not just gonna go buy a house with that. You're gonna do so much other things in terms from like a financial perspective that will have much bigger returns. Yes, probably. But but a house takes advantage of the leverage effect, which mm-hmm. is $100,000 in the stock market at 10% is only a $10,000 return. $100,000 you can leverage into a $500,000 house at a 10% rate of return is $50,000. Mm-hmm. So leveraging uh, debt, essentially... Um, can amplify returns. And we live in a society in Canada where there's a very strong financial system that you're allowed to put 20% down on a property and the bank will give you a loan at a relatively low interest rate to invest into a pretty solid and stable asset, such as a property. Versus in other countries, like my uncle lives in Croatia and we were driving through like the cities, uh, the streets of Croatia, and you see houses like half built, Mm. Or like just rooms built and then the other half is under construction. I'm like, why don't they just build the whole house? And he's like, Anthony, because here the banking system doesn't just give mortgages out to people. If you want to do that and take a loan, it's going to be like 25% interest rate. right? 25%. But that's because the banking system in these other in a lot of other countries are not as stable or sophisticated as in Canada. 
where they'll give you a three to 5% interest rate on a mortgage where you could just build a whole house at once, right? So what you said is true, <laughs> yeah. but there's a lot, it always depends and there's more information yeah, to it's, it. It's very like, it's just something that I grew up believing that I had to unlearn, which is like buying a house isn't the end all be all. It's still a good yeah. investment to have. It's just once you have a house, it's not like you're good. Like you have that safety net, I guess, but in order yeah. to grow real wealth, like Kevin O'Leary told you, like you have to be an entrepreneur. You have to start businesses and you have to own equity in things that are not taking money out of your pocket. Yeah. You have cash flow positive returns. So now, I've seen people get wealthy without being an entrepreneur. It happens. Mm. Like, really, at the end of the day, it's how much money do you make? How much are your expenses? What's the delta of that? And where do you put that money? Like, do you put it in good investments or do you put it under your mattress? Right. And that over a period of time, excuse me, can make, can make you wealthy. So, um, but the statistics are the statistics in, in Canada, don't quote me on these numbers a hundred percent, but they're, uh, accurate within uh, a good marginal, uh, like rate of error. Um, there's 440,000 millionaires in Canada. Okay. That's people that have over a million dollars of net worth outside of their primary residence. Okay. Of the 440,000 people, 50% of them are medical doctors. So 220,000 gone. Okay. Really? So there's $220,000 left or 220,000 millionaires left of that portion of the millionaire population. 3%, sorry, 1% are salaried employees. Okay. 3% are executives or C-suite. 7% are salespeople or um, self-employed individuals. And then the remaining uh, 89% are incorporated business owners. So from that information right there, the best way of becoming a millionaire is how? Starting incorporating. Becoming Starting a, a doctor. Wait, how? If 89% <laughs> Of is... the remaining amount. Oh, so half. Okay, sorry. I missed. Yeah. So half is. Yeah, yeah. I got lost in the <laughs> That's all right. I know, I know. So becoming a doctor. Is so... the best way to becoming a millionaire. Now, here's the thing, though. Top 100 richest families in Canada, how many of them are doctors? Not one. Zero, right? So if you want to be like fuck ton wealthy, you don't want to, you want to become a business owner or a salesperson, something like that. Mm. Yeah. By the way, I didn't ask if I could swear on your podcast. Yeah, I just you can. Did. It's somewhat serious. Okay. There you go. Yeah, that's fine. Damn, that's really interesting. The 50% being a doctor. Yeah, now those incorporated business owners could also be like accountants that incorporate. They could also be doctors that incorporate. Mm. So it's like there's many different kinds of entrepreneurs that incorporate businesses. You know, like if you're a surgeon and you start your own uh, surgery, like plastic surgery clinic or something, you're considered an incorporated business owner, right? Yeah. So there's different ways of skinning that. That's so interesting. I've, I've never heard this thought before. I'm yeah. Like, Honestly, there's only so many people that want to be like super wealthy because I feel like most people they get once you get to a certain standard of living and salary, I feel like most people are okay with that. Just based off my experience and talking to them, like a lot of people don't want to be like super, super wealthy. Why would you? There's a lot of sacrifice required to be super, super wealthy. I feel like it's the vision is what drives the people. That usually, yeah, it's usually not money. Yeah. You know, I, I love the Jordan the Jordan Peterson talks about this a lot where it's like the reason why um, I'm 
consider keeping this or not. And just so that everyone knows, okay, this could be a little bit controversial. But the reason why women do not make as much money as men is that women are actually smarter than men. They know what happiness is. Somewhere between 35 and 45, as men continue to climb the corporate ladder, and that's why you hear like men get divorces and don't know their children's their children and they have estranged like relationships with their it's because they don't focus on family and they keep focusing on their career as they get older and then they make more money, but they're less happy. Somewhere around that 35 to 45 range, women get smart and they realize my career is not going to make my life happy. So why focus on it? Let's focus on the other things in life that actually result in happiness, Mm -hmm. which is enough money, not a little bit of money, but enough money, a good family, a good spouse, good relationships, a good place within uh, like a community or like your like area that you live in, et cetera. That's what makes life happy, right? So it's like, why would I want to make $5 million a year? Do you know what sacrifice is required to make $5 million a year? If it was easy, everyone would make $500 million, $5 million mm. a year, right? So it's like usually the people that continue to make a lot of money and are happy are the ones that are not doing it for the money. They're doing it because it's just like, it's as Naval Ravikant says, it's play. Yeah. They're just good. They wake up every day and they play and they so happen to find a game that they could play every single day that makes them good money and impacts a lot of people. It's very interesting because um, it kind of ties in with like, game theory um i really like alex hermosi and he says something about that which is that you have to play a game where the point of the game is to keep the game going right yeah so marriage you don't play marriage to win marriage you play marriage to keep the marriage going same thing with entrepreneurship so with these types of things there's certain like you said men are more inclined to do it there obviously are women that do it as well but for reasons because they're smarter and they know that there's more to it, these hyper-obsessive men, they tend to just, like, get obsessed with the game of keeping the game going, and they never stop. That's for ego. Men are more egotistical. They're more aggressive. They're more, like, industrious, meaning they always want to, like, conquer and, like, whatever. And that's... I'm not a psychologist, so I'm not going to get into, like, the evolutionary psychology behind that, but it's probably for, like, reasons that we can't control that are not, like, conducive to, uh, like, today's society. Like, mm-hmm. men, like yeah, to be happy in today's society, you don't need to keep conquering, yeah. right? You just have to take care of your own garden and just be happy. So where are you along that spectrum of, like, conquering versus just getting to the point where I'm good, but I still want to maintain this level and focus on other things in life yeah that's a good uh as i get older definitely i'm realizing what makes life meaningful uh and it's not just work um or definitely not making money i do not care about making money at all Mm -hmm. like i just want to be able to live you know i like my green juices (laughs) which are not cheap but um you know so i don't want to be poor but i don't strive to make $500,000 plus a year, which is the top 1%. Um, But to answer your question, it's more about, I wake up every day, most days, it's not going to be every single day, but I wake up every single day and I enjoy the people that I work with and I enjoy the clients that I work with and I enjoy doing what I do. So to me, work is not work. 
very, very, especially as I progress in my entrepreneurial career, very few of the things that I do on a weekly basis is considered work to me. I was looking forward to seeing Valentina today (laughs) and Mark and Danielle and Chris and my cousin Daniel and my brother Michael that all work with me. Fuck. Imagine you could wake up and go to work every day with your best buds that you used to chill and play video games with in high school and stuff. Sounds amazing. I love it. You know? So even if at the sacrifice of making a lot of money going to work at like an investment bank or a consulting firm, um, I'm cool with that. Yeah, I don't think it's worth it at the end, personally. Yeah. And and we know, though, me and you just said that if you do 10 things, one of them's going to pop off and I'll probably get my like exit of some sort that will make me financially like stable and free. Yeah. Yeah. So let's go back to that. Um, so you started working at a bunch of startups. You yeah. started trying around, learning. Yeah. Did your four-year degree in entrepreneurship? Pretty much, yeah. Four years it was about. And then yeah. you started your practice, which turned into King Street Wealth. King Street Wealth, yeah. So how did that... How did we go from there to King Street Media, which okay. is what you're primarily known for? Yeah. So uh, in 2017, um, I was living with my buddy, Chris, Chris Mamone, and him and I were living in Liberty Village together. Mm. And he was doing he went he did a college degree and then went back to university online for advertising. And um, I never took a marketing course in my life because science student, I took all science courses in high school and in university, never took a marketing course. And, um, but I really like psychology and people and the way they think. And um, so during this period of time, him and I would be like hanging out and he'd go to work during the day, I would go to work. And then on weekends and nights, he was doing this advertising degree. And he was so busy that he would pay me in like, like, here, I'll give you a couple of beers, do this one assignment for me. And I'd be like, <laughs> okay, sure. And then I actually started liking it. I'm like, oh, the way what goes into advertising is not just like funny comedy. There's like, there's like emotion and thinking and ideal client profiles. And who are they trying to target through this advertisement? And like just thinking about it now gives me goosebumps. Like the art and the approach and the deepness that goes into a good advertising campaign. Um, I started to like actually find interesting. Okay. And then during that period of time, I took one course online on how to build a social media marketing agency. Um, and what really happened is I was just, these were all just interests, but I never actually wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. I was just like, that's interesting. Let me take a course. Well, that's interesting. Then I used that course to start marketing my own business. And then my clients, it was like a one month period of time in, early 2018, where a bunch of my clients asked me, who's running your social media? It's so good. And that was my podcast, my content, the whole idea of like creating a podcast, cutting it down to micro pieces. I was doing in 2018 when Mm. Gary Vee was like just starting to talk about it and stuff like that. Now everyone does it, right? It's not like I'm famous on online or anything like that. So I didn't capitalize on it, but I was following that method. So people were like, that's interesting. And about 10 people said that to me in a one-month period of time. And I was like, am I on to something? So I reached out to a couple marketing people to see if they could run my marketing and saw how much they could, how much they were charging. And I was like, get out of here. You're going to charge that much to do what I'm doing, which seems like on my spare time. So that's when I first started a social media marketing agency. I took on a couple clients to make an extra little bit of money. Uh, To me, it was like, I just want to make enough money to... Uh, pay for my podcast production. Mm. 
So it started a couple thousand dollars a month, turned a couple clients turned into five clients, turned into hiring my buddy Mark Simone as uh, my full-time chief operating officer, turned into 10 clients, turned into our first six-figure year, multiple six figures. We acquired a creative marketing agency in 2019, and now we're uh, a million-dollar-plus revenueing marketing agency with like 15 people, King Street Media. I see. That's... That's a, a lot of stuff happened yeah. <laughs> during that period of time. We're five and a half years old now, yeah. um, but that's like the short that's, story. So I'm gonna dive a little bit deeper into yeah, that. Sure. So at the time, what were you doing? So you you were with Chris and you were taking these advertising courses. Yeah. Got into that. What were you doing? Were you working? Were you running? I was still courses? running my financial practice okay. through a, a brokerage. Okay. Which, by the way, when they found out what I was doing, they fired me. In 2019. Why? Because uh, in the finance industry, you're not allowed to like work outside of the finance industry. What is this mafia? It's a regulatory. It's a regulated business. Okay. So, so it's regulated. So you can't have conflicts of interest. So yeah, I got in trouble for that. I got fired. Yeah. And I got fired in 2019. And that's when I started King Street Wealth. Mm, yeah. Okay. But my, pr- the King Street Wealth was just a continuation of my practice that I was building at this brokerage. I see. So with King Street Media, 2017, right? Which I don't recommend to anyone who's in the finance industry. Just disclose your outside business activity. I wish I did that. But I was an immature kid who was like, what's the worst that could happen, you know? Wait, why why was it a problem? You're not allowed to have undisclosed outside business activity. So if you would have disclosed it or said, would that have been They probably would have said no. So that's why I didn't do it. I see. And I paid my dues. I got a little bit of a fine and I got like in trouble and shit like that. So I paid my dues for breaking the rules. I broke the rules, but it was worth it. (laughs) I mean, things worked out. Yeah. So with King Street Media, how is the transition from doing it as a part-time side thing? Let me see what this is about. Yeah. Advertising is cool. I like media. I like marketing to actually pursuing it as a business and then bringing on your first full-time employee. It was... um, I wish, again, I was not an experienced entrepreneur at this point, but I was not a beginner entrepreneur. I'd say I was like starting to develop into like the intermediate level, right? So it's like once you, beginning entrepreneurship is like how do you structure a team, product market fit, what are the different components of a business, whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Now, as you start getting into like the tens of thousands of dollars a month of revenue, now you need things like, proper payroll, proper invoicing, proper taxes, proper bank account management, proper HR, that kind of stuff, right? And also during that period of time, it was tax season. So I built the company from June to December. Remember, I have cyclical points where I have to work a lot and don't have to work a lot. So from June to to December of 2018, I built the business up. But then in tax season, I had like mental breakdowns, man, like heart palpitations, woke up in the middle of the night, like (gasps) kind of shit. And that's when I knew I needed a full-time employee. I wish I could have predicted it sooner. Mm. I would have uh, had a little bit more hair on my head. But um, uh, that's when I knew I was like, okay, I need a full-timer. There's a great book called uh, Traction by Gino Wickman that teaches you about company structure and the necessary need the, the need for uh, what's called an integrator. So an integrator is the um, the yin and the yang of a visionary and an integrator. So the CEO and the COO. The visionary or the CEO is very like future focused, growth, strategic partnerships, sales, that kind of thing. 
um, product innovation. And the integrator or the COO is the operations day-to-day, make sure everything's getting done properly, make sure nothing breaks. And Mark is my ying, and I'm his yang to that. I don't even think it's ying and yang. I think it's something else, but... I think it is. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yin-yang. Yin-yang, something yeah. like that, yeah. Okay. So Mark came in, and with him there every single day, taking care of the operations of the company, we essentially doubled every year since 2018. And what kind of clients were you focusing on? It's changed over the years. Like back then was like, how do you manage somebody's social media? Mm-hmm. But the industry has innovated and and has picked up pace since then. So like 2018, 2019 was very much like we're meeting with business owners, trying to tell them or educate them on the need for digital marketing. Then the pandemic happened and it was no longer like, I don't know, does this social media thing, does this paid ads thing work? Now everyone was just like, Give me that, give me that, give me that. And we like tripled during the pandemic um, because of the acceleration of the digitization of business operations and marketing and the mass adoption of digital marketing strategies and techniques that made running a digital marketing agency easier for acquiring clients. Mm -hmm. So since then, we've been really picking up. Okay, and then now how, how has it transitioned to like now? Now we're focused on talent. Because at the end of the day, a marketing agency, um, our product is our team. And uh, just like um, a tech technology company, their product is their software, or their technology. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, a technology company does like research and development R&D on like their product. They try to innovate their product, make their product better. And it's a thing, right? Um, with a professional services company, it's more like, how do we R&D and innovate our team? So it's like acquiring new people that are super talented or uh, developing the people on our team to work better together or to get better at their individual skill sets. I see. That's very interesting. So it's not more internal rather than trying to get bigger clients or different. Well, in turn, by doing that, you get bigger clients because then you start doing better work and then people start to notice. Mm. And also when you're pitching bigger clients, they only care about what... Who's on your team, you know? And when you showcase um, uh, amazing people on your team, it's easier to win bigger business. I see. So it's like a positive like feedback loop. And most people, they go get bigger clients first, then get the team, um, which that can work. So that's why I ask, because that's like when talking to other marketing agencies or yeah. media agencies, that's like their biggest goal is like, Bigger fish. We need a whale. We need a. I know, but what ends up happening is those people are really good at talking, and they get the bigger client, and then they don't follow through, and that hurts the business long term. Like Mm. it's nice to get a hundred thousand dollar contract, but if you drop the ball on that contract, it'll. It's like nice to get that money, but then you won't get it sustainably over the long run. Mm -hmm. So it's like, for me, it's better to build the team and slowly get the bigger clients as you're building the team's abilities. Yeah, I agree. And then, because you don't want your reputation off, like, fumbling. We don't want to get that big client, you fumble it, and then your reputation... Toronto in Canada is a small, (laughs) small pool, and people talk. So sooner or later, those people that brag about those short-term wins, if they're usually, like, the salesy marketing types, if they can't execute, it's not going to be good. And I think that's one of the things that's like unique about me and how I run my agency is that I'm from a finance and accounting background, Mm. you know? So it's like the way I operate the agency is different than other agency owners who are usually advertising and marketing people that start an agency. 
I'm a finance and like uh, finance and like scientific method type guy who starts an agency. So. How do you think that differentiates and helps you when you go into those like big client meetings and you have that background? I know how to speak to the executives who care more about like dollars and cents, mm. but like I still have other partners who are more creative and like all about that kind of stuff that, cause you still need to be able to be a creative individual mm. in the advertising world too. So, yeah. Okay. Interesting. So from King Street Media, you've, you weren't done. You wanted to start something else, and you started Creator Club Studios. Yeah, correct. So Creator Club Studios is where we're at now. Right, yeah. Can you tell us more about that and what your mission is with that? I want to I go back for a second and okay. say, like, <clears throat> it sounds like I'm doing a lot of stuff, but I'm not, okay? All I'm doing is I'm creating a consulting company that has multiple um, disciplines or practices within it that service entrepreneurs. That's it. My financial consulting practice does fractional CFO work, taxes, and money management or money advice mm. for entrepreneurs. King Street Media is there to service entrepreneurs or people who run companies that are entrepreneurial-minded to scale those companies and to tell their story more, Yeah, right? Make them more money and grow because if good, more good companies grow, the world will be a better place, Okay. And Crater Club is just an abbreviate is just another practice within that. It's yeah, there's finance, there's digital marketing, but there's now with the Crater economy, so paid ads are becoming more saturated. So the same do- uh, cost per acquisition to get a new customer is going up as more people use the platforms. Mm-hmm. So people are moving to this thing, the Crater economy. That's why people like you are doing so well during this period of time. It's In 1950, there was only a handful of TV stations and radio stations that people could distribute content on and therefore buy advertising placements on. You know, everyone heard there was only like three TV stations and three radio stations in the 50s, Mm -hmm. right? Now with the emergence of social media and digital platforms such as like the internet, podcasts, YouTube channels, etc., the places that people can distribute content has grown exponentially, okay? And therefore, the the unique types of people that can the unique types of people and where their attention are going is being decentralized. Okay. Which means that there's more places that advertisers can buy up advertising space. Um, but they would only want to do it in piecemeal approaches. Like your following is very unique and niche. Okay. Mm. And therefore not every brand is going to want to, uh, advertise on your platform. But a very one brand who's like, this guy is perfect for our ideal client profile. They're going to pay you a lot of money to advertise on your platform, right? Mm -hmm. But they're also going to advertise on like 20 other people's platform. So how do you manage that? Like, how do you manage all of these creators and the sponsored placements that you do um, through like email or Slack messages, which is currently how it's being done right now. Mm -hmm. So we created Creator Club to essentially pair creators and brands using one streamlined software platform that makes it really easy for the creators to interact with the brands because creators hate pricing, collecting money, dealing with clients, bullshit, right? And brands hate managing all of these creators that are like creative types on like emails or like through phone calls and stuff. So they can just log into one portal, do what they got to do, manage the production process of content and sponsorships. And if content creators can just plug in create content and get paid that's creator club okay 
<laughs> did I go too much? <laughs> no, no, that was that was perfect. That was exactly like what you explained it perfectly, and it made sense that there's a problem, and you offering like a proper solution for it. Yeah, it's just I don't agree with you where you're saying that you don't have multiple things going on. Because it might be all under one umbrella, and because you probably manage it so well, it feels like, hey, I get to work with all the people I'm close with, and you guys have a good relationship because of the way you built it. But it is still like three separate. Yeah, but entities. not really. All of them run on the same payroll, the same mm-hmm. HR systems, the same IT systems, the same management protocol, the same like, the, the, all of them run on the same systems. Yeah. It's just different people. It's the same thing like Deloitte or Ernest & Young, or like all of these consulting firms, they have multiple practices within their ecosystem. They have that's, IT, that's accounting. They have so much going on. Right, financial <laughs> advisory. They have like a cybersecurity. They got even marketing agencies. Yeah. So it's just a consulting firm that the niche is growing businesses. Mm. So how did you build these systems? Um, two books. Traction by Gino Wickman. And uh, Profit First by Mike Michalowicz. Two books that I didn't just read. I studied extensively. Mm. Yeah. So for any entrepreneur, it would be like read the E-Myth. That's like the beginner one on like company structure and whatnot. Then read uh, Profit First by Mike Michalowicz, which is about like management accounting for entrepreneurs. And then read Traction. Traction is the be-all and end-all. If you do Traction properly... Um, you can scale a company from zero to like a hundred mil. I don't know what to do after a hundred mil because I haven't got there yet. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure there's something else out there. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, de- I'm definitely gonna check those out because yeah. right now I'm reading. Right now I'm reading zero to one. Oh, book good book been, too. I read that in like 2017. It's changing my mindset on a lot of things. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna check those out. Anyone that wants to be an entrepreneur should check those out as well. Yeah. Um, my next question for you is that what impact do you want to have on the world? Like, why are you doing all this? How am I doing on time, Valentina? 1240, you guys have been talking for 51 minutes. Wow. Sorry, I ramble sometimes, yeah, man. Yeah, no, it's cool. Because no one ever yeah. asks me these questions, right? So I just, I'm just... I'm going to ask, right now, we're getting to the segment of the podcast where I'm going to ask you some questions. Any question that you're not comfortable answering is, you could just opt out. But this is the serious part. Okay, sorry. Okay, the serious <laughs> part. Why do I do what I do? Because I don't know what happens when you die. I'm not a necessarily religious person. So I want to impact as many people as possible, as deep as possible, in that varying degree of matrix of wide and deep while I'm here. Mm. That's why I do what I do. Because if I can if I can provide, like our payroll right now is about like 100000 a month. That's $100,000 of... Um, living that i get to provide to a handful of people that's pretty cool it's not amazing it's not like i'm like showtime or anything like that but that's i go to bed at night and my favorite time of the month is the two times a month that we pay payroll and i go like that's sick that is not something i thought an entrepreneur would be saying yeah i love it because if you have a good profitable business model you don't have a problem paying people you love it because the bigger the payroll means the bigger your company's getting Mm -hmm. right so well, that just shows your intentions are in the right place and yeah. you have a good system. Yeah. But beyond just the company, as an individual. As an individual, I want to impact as many people as possible. It doesn't just have to do with the company. Mm-hmm. Just that right now in the phase that I'm in, I need to build capital and influence in order to do the things that I want to do in the future, which just continue to be 
impacting people's lives as widely or as deeply as I possibly can and having fun along the way. Okay. Next question is, would you say that you're happy? Happiness is a cyclical, um, fleeting um, feeling. So uh, right now, am I happy? No. Have I been happy before in the past? Yes. And will I be happy again in the future? Yes. Mm. So it's like, am I content? Am I happy with the trajectory of my life and what I do? Yes. Currently, right now, I'm going through a difficult time. But that's that happens. That's like the answer that exactly I would have given because it's not something that's constant. Right. There's fluctuations in life. It's like the pursuit of perfection it's like the pursuit of perfection is what everyone's after, right? But also the pursuit of happiness is what everyone is after. So I've been happy many, many times for long periods of times in the last one year. Currently right now, no. Yeah, well, I don't even think you can feel true joy or happiness unless you feel the uh, contrast to that. Which I is love that. Despair. That's so true. How do you know if the food that you're eating is good unless you've tasted some bad food? Exactly. You know? And... For a long time, if you eat a lot of bad food, bland food, and you have a steak. <laughs> Best feeling ever. <laughs> yeah. So the contrast in life is what I feel like really matters. And people yeah. don't give it enough credit. Yeah. And you, just, you got me at a bad time right now. That's no, why. I, I, I love that you didn't just say something like, yeah, I'm happy. This is that. I just the reason I ask these questions is to for someone that's going through a rough time to know that like, yeah, it's it's cyclical. There's contrast. Yeah. Two sides of a coin, and you're just going to go through it all the time. That's all it is. Are you in a relationship? Uh, I'm in multiple relationships. <laughs> Do you mean a romantic, a romantic one? Romantic relationship. No. no. Do you think it's important? How, how, how do you think the importance of a partner ties into entrepreneurship and business? I've seen entrepreneurs who do it without a partner. Mm. And then I see ones that do it with a partner and fuck it up. So I think that if you're talking about like success, it, it's give and take. I've seen it both worlds. Yeah. If you're talking about happiness, I used to never think it had an involvement with happiness. Um, but until I met some people recently who are successful entrepreneurs without a wife or a spouse that are very happy, that I know like they're not just like showing they're happy, mm-hmm. they're actually happy individuals. So they go through the cycles, right? I think what it comes down to is do you have people who are close to you that you can celebrate the wins with and are there for you during the difficult times. And that doesn't need to come through a romantic partner, but definitely having a strong romantic partner is the easiest way of doing it. Mm -hmm. Because the hard truth is that as you get older, your parents pass away. As you get older, your brothers and sisters, they get spouses and they have less time to hang with you as well as your friends. Mm -hmm. Right? So it's tough to build that community of people that are around you during the difficult times and the good times when they're all off doing their own family. So in our society, the easiest way of doing that is through a spouse, right? But it's not the only way. No, I agree. And it's just the reason I'm asking is because people have this theory of like all these billionaires, they only got to where they are, are at because of their spouses. But to touch on what you said, which is like what you really need is like a support system. Yeah. And I feel like, with men in particular, men don't feel like they can get intimacy unless it's from a woman because we're not really intimate with each other. Like sometimes like you could be feeling down and you're not going to go to your boy, like your boy 
it's just looked down upon to be like, yeah. bro, I feel like shit. Like, I just need a hug You're from right. your friend. <laughs> there is that dynamic, but I have to say that Daniel Francavilla and Mark Simone are always there to hug me when I need one. Same with Valentina. She tosses me a hug every once in a while. Yeah, so I feel like that's what really matters. Like the spouse part. That is, but it's easier with a spouse because it's difficult to have such an intimate relationship for the long term unless you're building a family unit together, Mm. right? So that's the easiest way, but it's not the only way. No, that's exactly what I'm trying. Yeah, no, I'm not saying that you could substitute a spouse. I'm just saying there's other ways to achieve that support system in order to like pursue what you want to do and go through the hard times. Yeah, you're right. Okay, I think that's all the questions for me. Is there anything else you want to say? Anything that... No, this you're a good interviewer know. and you ask good questions. Yeah, that's my story. No one's really asked me these questions before, so you got the goods that yeah. no one else has right now. It's <laughs> good. I mean, the reason, like, I... That's, like, the whole point of the show is, like, I want to joke around and talk about, like, Vince, even though we didn't do much about that on this episode but i also want to talk about like serious stuff um so like the hard subjects that people like don't really feel comfortable talking about yeah yeah i love that Uh, for me it's like i love doing this because i have this thing where i want my grandchildren one day to be able to find this on the internet Mm. like i hope you don't take this down and you let it live evergreen yeah and one day like maybe my grandchildren are listening to this right now and they're like oh that's what you know, Anthony was like my grandfather mm-hmm. in 2023 at 32 years old. Boom. Stamped in time. And what would you tell them if they're watching? Fuck, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> That's not super inspirational, but this is what I was like. This is what my mind was going through during yeah. this period of time. This is what shaped me in being who I was in the future at whatever point in time. Mm. That's all. This is a, a moment in time. But the great thing about media is that we time-stamped it and we captured it. That's yeah. beautiful. And I'm going to keep it up. This is never, there you go. forever forever on the internet. You know what they say. Once it goes online. There you go. I appreciate you, brother. Appreciate you time. didn't ask me how much money I made. So we'll keep that till next podcast, all right? So, 